I'll leave it up to those wiser than myself to explain that story to toddlers. <laughs> it's great to be here this morning and uh, excited to share God's word with you. Still getting over the lingering effects of a cold this week, so please bear with me this morning. My voice isn't quite what <coughs> I would like it to be, but we'll make the best of it today. Would you now bow with me as we enter God's word and ask his blessing? Father God, we thank you so much again for this morning. Thank you for each one who's here. And God, we know that you are intimately concerned with each one of us, each one of our circumstances, each one of our concerns, each one of our worries and fears, Lord. You know them, and you are here to take them from us if we would but give them to you. And so, God, as we come before you this morning, we simply want to Give whatever we've brought with us, Lord, that baggage that's going to hinder us from hearing you this morning, and we just give it up freely to you, Lord. Would you take all the concerns and cares of the week away from us, uh, the concerns and cares of what we're going to do later on today, and we just give them to you, Lord, and ask that you just give us a freedom to hear from your word this morning, that we would make room within us, Lord, for your Holy Spirit to work and to speak. And I pray, God, for just that work to work Um, within us and through me, God. I pray that you would bless me to speak your word clearly. Give me the strength to speak it, Lord, as you would have me do, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, we're continuing along in our series on 1 Peter. We're drawing close to the conclusion of our study in 1 Peter. And today we are looking at fiery trials, fiery faith. In Reader's Digest, a young woman told of being employed as a dental receptionist. She said that once while I was on duty, an extremely nervous patient came in for a root canal. He was brought into the examining room and made comfortable in the reclining dental chair. The dentist then injected a numbing agent around the patient's tooth and left the room for a few minutes while the medication took hold. However, when the dentist returned back into the room to see how the patient was doing, the patient was standing next to the tray that held all of his dental equipment and surgical tools. What are you doing with the surgical instruments? asked the surprised dentist. To which the man, focused on his task, replied, I'm taking out all the ones I don't like the look of. (laughs) There's a lot of nasty looking tools that a dentist employs, isn't there? Now imagine if you were going in for an operation and you saw the drill and all those other fun tools. If you could take out the ones you didn't like, well, chances are your operation might not go that well. Well, this is exactly how many Christians approach the Bible. We tend to cherry-pick verses and passages that we like, but avoid the ones we don't like the look of or the sound of. The result of that being that we end up living a watered-down life a powerless form of Christianity, one that claims all of the benefits of salvation and the blessings of God, but that requires very little of us in return. In this watered-down form of Christianity, there is no need to count the cost of following Jesus, no need to put to death, therefore, the desires of the flesh, and certainly no need to suffer for the sake of Jesus' name. In fact, this lukewarm version of Christianity embraces blending in with a sinful culture. And it does this to such an extent that, other than perhaps sometimes going to church on a Sunday morning, there is no discernible difference between a Christian and someone who is not. 
Now, the Apostle Paul warned of this when he wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears desire. Now, as we think about who or where these teachers are, I would venture to be so bold as to say they are all around us and even amongst us. The so-called health and wealth teaching can fall quite neatly into this category. Those who would promote that if you are simply obedient to God and follow his ways, then you will not only be healthy, but wealthy as well. And by extension of that, the problem with this is if you're not healthy or wealthy, then you must have sinned or been displeasing to God in some way. Going further down the, down the list, to name names, Joel and Victoria Austins, and I quote, serving God not for him, but for your own happiness, their version of Christianity falls into this category. Not talking about sin, not talking about what we are saved from, only the whitewashed version, the, the happy, put a smile on it, all the time version of Christianity. Most certainly there are segments, even today within the Mennonite Church of Canada, right around us, that are beginning to fall into this category more and more. In fact, most of you have probably heard the news that made national headlines when a small Mennonite church in Osler, Saskatchewan, was the first Mennonite congregation to add their blessing and ordaining a same-sex union between two men. And we have, a, within our family, a close connection to this union because Leanne's uh, relatives were actually the ones involved in this ceremony. So this is something that's caused ripples even within Leanne's family. And so as we consider this sort of blatant disregard for what God's word clearly communicates about what God's plan for marriage is, being solely between one man and one woman, we begin to see that these teachers who are watering down or even twisting and changing the message of God's word altogether are right here. And God's word speaks plainly on these matters and includes warnings to not be deceived. The Apostle Peter is most certainly not one of the teachers who's just saying what people want to hear. And throughout our study in 1 Peter, we have been challenged again and again by him to live radically different lives from the world around us. Lives characterized by selfless love for others. The lives that are characterized by having hope even in the face of despair. Lives that have this optimism that even though we may be persecuted in this life, we know that heaven yet lies before us. And so because of this, we are armed with the same attitude as Jesus, willing to suffer any hardship, face any trial, endure any ridicule, and yes, even lay down their life for the sake of Jesus' name and obeying the will of the Father. Now in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 14, I invite you to turn there with me this morning. Let's take a look at these passages as Peter's beginning to wind up his letter. He's wrapping up some of the themes that he's been speaking about earlier. And now he returns to the ongoing theme of Christians facing persecution. Verse 12, he begins, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery trials that have come on to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. 
Does this describe the church in Canada today? Is this us? Are we facing fiery trials, insults for the sake of bearing Christ's name? Let's be honest. Is that describing the church in Canada? Not so much. In fact, these words, if we were to only look at the context of Christianity within Canada, would appear alien to us. They would appear as foreign to us as what Mars looks like. We have no idea what fiery trials look like. Not in our context. In fact, in order to even begin to understand what fiery trials can look like, we have to look elsewhere in the world. And if you do pay attention to the news coverage, we know that there are believers in other parts of the world who are undergoing exactly these sorts of fiery trials. And so as we consider that this is foreign to us, we need to ask ourselves, however, are we willing, are we ready and prepared to endure fiery trials, to even suffer, be insulted for the sake of bearing the name of Christ in our context, if it were to happen here in Canada. And so we need to ask ourselves, are we living in step with the Spirit and in in obedience to God to the extent that people notice a difference in us? In other words, are we living a life, are we living a faith that is worthy of persecution? Are we living so different that if people were prone to persecuting Christians, would we be amongst those who would be persecuted? Or would we just blend in? Would people even know we are Christians by how we live and how we conduct our lives? Or would we just fit in with the crowd? Could it be that like the man who wanted to throw away the dentist tools that he didn't like the look of, we have done the same thing with the faith? And in doing so, we've accepted a watered-down version of Christianity light, one that lacks power to change even ourselves, let alone the culture around us. You see, my friends, the gospel of Jesus Christ is still as powerful and life-changing as it has ever been. But its power will only work through us to the extent that we allow its power to work within us. We cannot expect to transform the town of Clarny for the kingdom of God if we will not first allow God to transform us. It is then, having been transformed, that we testify to others of the work that he has done in us. During World War I, a pastor named Donald Gray Barnhouse led the son of a prominent American family to the Lord. He was in the service, but he showed the reality of his conversion by immediately professing Christ before the soldiers of his military group. Finally, the war ended, and the day came when he was to return to his pre-war life in the wealthy suburb of a large American city. He immediately went and talked to Pastor Barnhouse about life with his family, and he expressed his great fear that he might slip back into his old ways of life before he had met the Lord. He was afraid that love for parents, brothers and sisters, and friends might turn him from following after Jesus Christ. Pastor Barnhouse listened to his concerns and then told him that if he was careful to make public confession of his faith in Christ, he would not have to worry. He would not have to give improper friends up. They would give him up. Either that or they would be drawn to learn more. So, as a result of this conversation, the young man agreed to tell the first ten people he encountered of his old friends and acquaintances, the first ten that he encountered, he would tell them of his decision to follow Christ. And so the soldier went home. 
Almost immediately, getting off the platform at the train station was an old acquaintance, a girl who he had known socially in the past. She was delighted to see him and asked him how he was doing. He told her, The greatest possible thing has happened to me. She replied, Oh, you've been engaged to be married? To which he replied, No, it's even better than that. I've met the Lord Jesus, and I've received him as my Savior. Well, the girl's expression froze. Her eyes kind of bugged out of her head, and then she said a few, that's nice, a few other polite words, backed away, and left. A short time later, the new Christian met a young man whom he had known before. He'd attended various parties with him. Finally, having met him again, he says, it's good to see you back. We've had some great parties, and now that you've returned, you can join us once again. To which the man replied, Well, I need to tell you something. You see, I've just become a Christian. Well, once again, the same response. The glazed-over expression, the eyes bugging out of the head, the, okay, that's nice, I guess I'll see you around. And the man quickly left. Now the soldier was thinking to himself, that's two. And, once again, the cycle continued to repeat itself. Friend after friend, he would tell them of his newfound faith, and each one would find a way to get out of the conversation and carry on. By the time word had gotten around, soon some of his friends stopped to see him. He had become peculiar, they said, religious, a fanatic, and who knows, they even called him crazy. Maybe something had happened to him over in the war, they didn't know, but whatever it was, they didn't want anything to do with him. What had he done? Nothing but confess Christ as his Savior. The same confession that had aligned him with Christ had separated him from those who did not want Jesus as Savior. And in fact, they did not even want to hear about him. But though they ridiculed him, over time they could not deny the change that they observed in his life. And as the years went by, some soon came to him to ask, Who is this Savior that you met? I want to know about him as well. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 16 says, If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear the name. Let me ask you, have you ever suffered for being a Christian? For bearing the name of Christ, have you ever been insulted or ridiculed? Maybe some of you in the past in the locker room of your sports team, you've been ridiculed because you've chosen to remain sexually pure when they are boasting of their exploits. Maybe in the cafeteria at school you've been mocked for bowing your head to pray. Maybe you've lost friends because you wouldn't follow them into the party scene of drinking and drugs. Maybe you've had family members who turned against you because you became a Christian and chose to live it out. Maybe you've lost out on business opportunities because you refused to be dishonest because of your convictions. If so, do not be ashamed But praise God that you bear that name. Now, it seems strange to praise God in suffering. It seems counterintuitive to be thankful when receiving insults. Yet when we consider what is at stake, we cannot help but be thankful. For to carry the name of Jesus means that we are God's children. Our sins are forgiven. His salvation is ours, and heaven will be our eternal home. But to those who do not bear the name of Jesus and reject God's free gift of grace, 
only an expectation of judgment remains. Verses 17 to 18, Peter writes, For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? You see, for the Christian, our judgment happens in this life, and our reward is received in the next. Have you ever thought about that? That's what Peter is saying here. Our judgment as Christians, the worst of it, happens in this life, because there is no judgment for the believer in the next. It is our reward. But on the other hand, the one who rejects Jesus, their only reward is whatever pleasure they can derive out of this life. For only God's judgment awaits them in the next. So if for even a moment you ever consider being ashamed of carrying the name of Christ, consider eternity. Consider what is waiting for us versus what is waiting for those who would mock the name of Christ. Now, what is puzzling in this verse is that it says judgment begins with the family of God. Now, what does this mean? What is Peter saying? Well, firstly, the reason judgment begins with the Christian is because there is no more judgment awaiting them in eternity. Consider, their sins have been forgiven, paid for. The judgment that they deserved was already poured out on Jesus on the cross. And secondly, the judgment that Peter refers to is not condemnation or punishment. For as Romans chapter 8 verse 1 states, Therefore there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what Peter means by judgment for the Christian is not condemnation for our sins, but instead the process of being purified more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. We know this because Peter is tying this reference directly back to the one he made earlier in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, where he writes, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Suffering trials and insults, Peter is writing, is all a part of the refining process. God is making us more into his image, getting out of the things that he doesn't want in our lives so that we can become more like him. I recently read a story about a group of women who were studying the book of Malachi. As they were reading chapter 3, they came across verse 3, which says this, He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. Well, this verse intrigued the women, and they wondered what this statement really meant about the character and nature of God. And so one of the women volunteered to, off, volunteered to look into the process of refining silver and get back to the group at their next Bible study. So that week, she, can, she contacted a silversmith. She made an appointment to meet with him and to watch him at work to learn how the process went. She did not mention anything about the reason for her interest in silver beyond her curiosity in the process. And so as she watched the silversmith go about his work, he held a piece of silver over the fire and let it heat up. He explained that in refining silver one needed to hold the silver in the middle of the fire where the flames are the hottest. 
so to burn away all of the impurities. The woman thought about God holding us in such a way over the fire. Then she thought again about the verse, He sits as a refiner and purifier of silver. She asked the silversmith if it was true that he had to sit there in front of the fire the whole time that the silver was being refined. The man answered that yes, he not only had to sit there holding the silver, but he also had to keep his eyes on the silver for the entire time that it was in the fire. You see, if the silver was left for even a moment too long in the flames, it would be destroyed. The woman was silent for a moment. Then she asked the silversmith, How do you know when the silver is fully refined? He smiled at her, and he answered, That's easy, when I can see my reflection in it. This is the same way that God refines us. Sometimes he holds us over the place where it feels the fire is too hot and it is too much. We wonder, is he even aware of what's happening in my life? And like the refiner of silver, he is not only aware, but he never takes his eye off of us. He knows exactly what he is doing, and we need to trust him to do it. For he knows that the moment he can see his reflection in us is the moment we have been made into the image of the Son whom he loves, the Lord Jesus. And so don't grow weary of the fire. Don't grow weary of the trials, because God is refining you to become more like the Son whom he loves. This is what God is doing, and I pray that he will continue to do it in us. And so as we hold up the mirror of God's word to our own lives, let me ask you, which version of Christianity does your life most closely resemble? Does it resemble the one that we are called to by Peter? Or is it the one that's described by Paul, those who are interested in only hearing what they want to hear, living a watered-down version of Christianity, asking questions like, how close can I get to sinning without actually doing it? How, how many of these sorts of, of movies and these sorts of circumstances can I put myself in and it still be okay? These are the sorts of questions that the watered-down Christian life asks because we're trying to be as much like the world as we possibly can. But on the opposite end, Peter says, no, don't be like the world. Christ is calling us to be removed from the ways of the world, that even as we live within this world, we will live so differently that they will not help but pay attention. There are those who are different amongst us. They have a different way of living, a different way of loving. And it's all because of this Jesus whose name they profess. May we live those sorts of lives as Christians in this town in this community, in your families, in your classroom, in your locker room, in your workplace. May we be those sorts of Christians who people can say they are different, and it's all because of the name of that Christ whom they profess. And so today, if that is your desire, to be transformed more into the image of Jesus in every aspect of your life, I want you to, instead of asking the question, how, how close can I get to sin without actually participating in it? Let's instead ask the question, how can I obey God's will, God's purpose for my life, more fully right now today? And so, as we close, I would invite you to stand with me. 
And let's pray and ask God together. Would you stand? Father God, we recognize your loving hand at work in our lives. We recognize that as we look back over our lives, trials that we've had to face, times of pain that we've had to endure, that, oh God, you were at work even there, burning out the impurities, drawing us more to yourself and making us more into your image. And so, God, today we simply ask, would we not grow weary or tired of your work in our lives? Oh, Lord, we know that sometimes you allow us to endure fiery trials so that we would have a fiery faith, one that is not ashamed or afraid to live out the power of Christ in every circumstance of our lives, to always be ready to speak your name in every circumstance. And so, God, give us grace and strength as we do so. Give us much mercy along the way and help us to show mercy and love to others as we go. May we be a witness to you and to your power that is at work within us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated.